Good evening to you all. How was the sound in the back? It's okay? Tonight I'd like to give a talk that addresses the multiple dimensions in which we live and uh, in which we can practice. You know, there's a language in the teachings of the Buddha where uh, he'll talk about things like the world and then there'll be talk about, you know, things that are unworldly. Um, But it would be wrong to get an idea of separation from the way these things are sometimes discussed. And in fact, we couldn't get away from the world if we wanted to. And you may have noticed that. Even being here in this secluded place and uh, being cut off from communication from the outside, the world comes in with us. I had uh, a few people uh, ask questions along the lines of, well, you know, when are you going to talk about social responsibility? When are you going to talk about social justice issues? And what I said was, well, they're already, they're already kind of here with you, aren't they? They're in your mind. Maybe what we should do, given that you can't actively do anything about it right now, is actually incline your mind to let go of that for now and settle. Why don't we let the mind settle while you're here, while you're in a state where you actually can't do anything about what's out there? If you look at how we exist, you could say, well, we arise as a process that's fed by other processes. So in turn, you provide by actions of body, speech, and mind causes and conditions for other arisings. We're not actually separate. We're always receiving from the actions of others, we're always contributing to the experience of others. But sometimes we think about practice in this way that's very individualistic as if it had nothing to do with anything other than our own mind sitting on the cushion observing its own private and somewhat inexpressible experience. I had a a student tell me recently about a, a website that has a, a lot of people on it who practice and then they kind of compare their practice experiences with each other and, and help each other evaluate what's going on. And this person said that there was uh, a lot of conversation on this about um, how when they really got into practice, when they were really practicing, you know, spending a lot of time on the cushion at home and know, really doing it, uh, the feedback they got from those closest to them was that they had turned into gigantic assholes. (laughs) And they thought this was maybe part of the process, like an inevitable part of the process. Like there was something about practice that was turning into a gigantic a-hole. So, sorry. Uh, 
but actually, uh, no. <laughs> this is imbalanced practice, actually, which fails to practice externally, i.e. with the experience of others. If you look at even the, the text of the Satipatthana Sutta, they talk about one practices with their own experience and one practices externally with the experience of others. And it's usually meant recognizing the, the state of another, uh, you know, recognizing, for instance, their walking, sitting, standing, uh, all of that. So the time in formal practice, which we've had the luxury of uh, doing here in this secluded space, is only part of the path. And the path can be and needs to be developed and practiced on many different levels. So we don't have to be secluded and sequestered always. We aren't actually practicing to be quiet and subdued and shy, even though this is kind of an introvert's holiday here. Um, you know, we're practicing to awaken and to carry that awakening into the world, into all the many different dimensions in which we exist, in which we move, in which we function. So this morning, Jaya got a question about awakening and the stages of awakening, and she gave a very uh, cogent answer to that. And she talked about, you know, what the experience was at, you know, the stream entry and what the experience was at the the second stage. Um, And this is a very useful and classical teaching. Um, However, many people would say that uh, actually the easiest way to check your level of awakening is to spend time with your family. (laughs) You know, that's the real test. So, you know, sometimes I've been asked you know, how I know if somebody is awake or how do I kind of evaluate that? And I'll say something like, well, my personal test is to imagine this being as a single parent with two small preschool children and this single parent works in a nursing home as an aide. And then I kind of imagine what their mind would be like when they were living that life, and then I can tell you whether I think they're awakened. So I'm kind of interested in the durability of it. I'm interested in the, what the, the heart-mind can handle. I'm interested in, in the wisdom of the being, of the stability of the being, of their ability to, to hold an attitude of renunciation and generosity and metta and compassion in daily life when they don't have special circumstances. For me, this is what's important. Not what gymnastics the mind can do in special circumstances. So really, what Use is awakening if it can't stand a good road test. And what use is an awakened person if they bypass whole dimensions of life in order to experience only a pleasant abiding? 
you know, we claim with this practice that we're cultivating generosity, goodwill, and compassion, and wisdom. And of course, these are inner states, they're inner experiences and attitudes of mind, but they can also be expressed in the world. Karma arises due to the wholesome or unwholesome actions of body, speech, and mind. And this is true whether our actions are internal or expressed externally. So, I should probably do a little bit of a personal narrative. I don't want to get too deep, deeply into this. And I certainly can't compete with running a marathon in my bare feet. So, but I, I, I have had, <laughs> I have had, it's just kidding kidding the assistant teacher so I did have the uh, experience um, in an earlier part of my life of actually being a community organizer meaning I was a person whose whose work was to um, respond to social problems to social injustice by getting practical things done by doing certain things that would change those conditions. And uh, the work that I did involved doing things like, uh, you know, going door-to-door in public housing projects and, uh, you know, organizing the people who who lived there into welfare rights groups. And um, then I got very involved with working with issues of violence against women, domestic violence, and... um, other forms of uh, violence, including things that I probably won't get into because you're in a delicate state. But in any case, this was uh, what I saw there, what I observed there, what I experienced in myself, what I experienced in the uh, in the knowing of others was really what brought me to the Dharma, really drew, uh, drove me to the Dharma. Because I started to realize that the, the magnitude of dukkha that existed, the magnitude of social dukkha, um, the social conditions that offered uh, uh, permission for certain kinds of uh, behavior that was, was harmful, the lack of resources, the... Uh, the way society shaped and formed people's view of what was uh, appropriate for them uh, to receive, uh, uh, the permissions that were given to others for uh, things to do, that it was this like immense network of both suffering but also delusion, and that there was no one place you could kind of go to in the middle of and either pull the knot apart or take your sword and just cut it and have the whole thing fall apart. But rather what I saw is because of the depth and the complexity of the causes and conditions that it was really very, very difficult to undo all of this. And yet, 
I was in a position where I felt, and indeed I was responsible for keeping people safe from harm. So, from my perspective, I was looking for and I needed a spirituality that actually supported life in the world and supported action in the world that strengthened the heart and mind for engagement. So let's consider the circumstances of the founder of the the tradition. So the Buddha himself was socially engaged. So we know the part of his narrative where, you know, he was born into privilege, basically a lot of privilege, trained to be a warrior, that was supposed to be his, his dharma, his job, his responsibility. But upon observation, he started to realize a little earlier than I did that, hey, you know, this just doesn't really line up. Look, there's death, there's illness, there's all these kinds of suffering. It's like, how does swinging a sword fix that? So then, of course, he took his journey. He went through these periods of practice of austerity, right to the point of death. Then he realized, okay, middle path, middle path, middle path. Don't go to extremes. Go in the middle. And he saw very clearly that the root of a lot of what we call discretionary human suffering was in the human mind. It was in the delusion that human beings held. And that if you could address the delusion, that really was going towards pulling the end of the knot in a way that would unbind it. That would be the sort of discriminating wisdom that could cut through it all. But the Buddha wasn't a quietist, right? He had his periods of seclusion, his periods of practice, of very difficult practices, periods of withdrawal. And then, he, and then he joined the world because he undertook it all from the very beginning for the sake of the world. That was the motivation. The periods of quiet, the periods of solitary practice, the periods of austerity, all the rest of it, that was the means, the means to cultivate a mind that could come to understanding about what the real problem was, which was delusion. So when the Buddha came out, he already had this intention. And he actually critiqued and overturned many of the social views of his time. So uh, in some of the dialogues in the suttas, you know, he's talking with a Brahmin or one or another religious seeker, and he, he's, he's having a, a conversation with him, them back and forth about what they think and why they think it. And he's asking them questions, and he's responding to their questions. But he was a major iconoclast in that he, he basically broke with many of the uh, inherited... Uh, predominant religious views of his era. He 
rejected the caste system. And this was very radical. You know, the idea at the time was, you know, you're kind of born into a role and a responsibility and to be a, a, a good being and to be, you know, practicing your dharma was to take up that, that, uh, that role that you were born into and do it the way people who had that role were supposed to do it. And that you didn't like, there's no social mobility. You didn't like, you know, move from, uh, you know, being a, a merchant into being a Brahmin. What you were born in was what, what you worked with. And the Buddha said, no. There, there's one teaching uh, that clearly points to this. Uh, in the Dhammapada, there's a, a teaching where he says, uh, him I call Brahman. So it's basically a reflection on, well, how do you get to be someone who's considered to be spiritually developed and evolved? I.e., theoretically, people who had the Brahman status at the time. And he basically said, it's all in what, what you do and what your mind is like. That's how you get to be a Brahman. And in his own order, he made no distinction in caste. So even though many of his earlier followers were people from uh, his own uh, community, the Sakyans, and many of them were kind of of the upper classes there, when they came in, they were like the same status as uh, somebody who was in what later became uh, the untouchable group. Who had... had, uh, higher rank in the group, it was by seniority. It's like when you joined the order. The Buddha also embraced the potential of women. You know, when he was, he was pressed to uh, let women enter the order, he answered the repeated question put to him by Ananda, well, women can uh, awaken too, right? Didn't you say women can awaken too? Women can awaken, right? (laughs) Three times. Ananda was a good dude. So, and he said yes. But that was so completely revolutionary that you would offer to women a formal status that was other than being attached to uh, home life and under the rulership or protection or control of a male relative. That was like radical. The Buddha actually stepped between warring parties. More than once he was called in a situation where some of the local tribal groups were getting ready to have a war, and he became uh, the mediator he was consulted by local rulers about what to do about certain things that were happening in their kingdoms. So he connected and he taught people at all levels of the society in which he lived. He just didn't hang out in seclusion in jhana. So you could say for this individual, his whole life was a revolutionary act. Even 2,600 years later, we look to his insights and to his training 
method to support both our own development and to strengthen the benefit we can be for others. The Buddha lived in a very violent time. So this is how he describes his, the time in which he lived. So this is after he had left home. So he says, Fear has arisen from one who has taken up violence. Behold, the people engaged in strife. I will tell you of my sense of urgency, how I was stirred by urgency, having seen people trembling like fish in a brook with little water. When I saw them hostile to one another, fear came upon me. The world was insubstantial all around. All the directions were in turmoil. Desiring an abode for myself, I did not see any place unoccupied. So it's not like he was born into an easy time. He was born into a very hard time, insecure. Just as in his time, there were expressions of greed, aversion, and delusion, both on the individual and on the collective level. So uh, the question is, how is this met? How do we as practitioners, who are also matrixed with all of the floating world, where there's so much suffering, how do we practice internally and externally? How do we think about this and proceed in a way that's integrated with the teachings of the Buddha? And I want to be uh, clear about this point up front. There are obviously many tools and many perspectives that we can draw on in working on issues that require social engagement. You know, you could look at intersectionality, you could look at neurobiology, you could look at economics, you can look at um, you could look at polyvagal theory, you could look at the the inherited uh, tendencies from times when we were bands of hunter-gatherers that you know, existed in a world where we knew everybody and the other groups were a danger and all the habit patterns from that. You could look at teachings around implicit bias. There's value in all of these other perspectives. I, for myself, integrate these other understandings or these other views into what is the foundation for me and the invariable for me, the rock of my understanding, which is the teachings of the Buddha. So I see these as useful supports, but none of, none of it is going to cause me to vary from the, from the ground of the teachings of the Four Noble Truth and the Eightfold Path. So there's a Zen saying, not to not two. Things are not two. It's a kind of pointing to the indivisibility of reality. It's unified and porous nature. 
So if we're to consider what the basis of action in the world is as a practitioner of this path, we can find both a context and a tool. So the first question is, why would we act? Why would we be doing, willing to do so? Why? When we could, you know, have a quiet abiding or a, a pleasant, secluded life. And I think the answer to that has to be, like the Buddha, out of compassion and wisdom, out of a desire to relieve suffering, our own, that of other humans, of other beings, and of the planet itself. So that would be the motivation that would move us beyond uh, consideration of just the small world in which we live. So a second question then is, what would be the basis for action? What would be the basis? We've talked about the motivation, said it would be compassion, wisdom and compassion. And I think it would be to cultivate wise intention. In other words, to develop and support goodwill and compassion. To let go of self-centered craving and engage with suffering, which is arising internally and externally. Because it's really not two different things, is it? I mean, if we're aware of it, if we're aware of the suffering in the world, we're experiencing it internally. We may not be experiencing it personally in the sense that it applies, you know, just to us. We could say a basis for action is to express these values in actions of body, speech, and mind intended in a way to relieve unnecessary suffering and to do so with an appreciation of the karmic potency of the quality of our actions. So if you remember the talk on that touched on mundane wise view, I said one of the important pieces of that is to realize that actions born from greed, aversion, and delusion bring further suffering, and actions coming from generosity and and metta and karuna bring wholesome results. And there's a major insight with this when we're working in the world, which is there is no difference between means and ends. There is no difference between means and ends. The method, the means, determine the karmic quality of the ends. So the, the quality of the mind with which you act matters. It determines the moral quality of what happens then. So if we understand that the root of suffering is delusion, we can understand that Delusion can function on the individual level, but it also can function on the collective level. It can manifest as racism. It can manifest as resource hoarding. It can manifest as wars. But the root is delusion. 
better known as ignorance born from wrong understanding. The collective is an amalgamation of the individual, probably multiplied by a number of other causes and conditions, including the fact that responsibility is so dispersed and control, individual control is impossible, that there's not necessarily a lot of responsibility taking because who could control it? But this distinguishing between what's wholesome and what's unwholesome as a basic for action is really important. You've, you've probably heard the teachings on Hiri and Otapa, right? Which is usually translated as uh, uh, shame and guilt moral shame and moral guilt or something like that. I think a more interesting way to put it is it's actually more about moral regret and moral concern. Guilt and shame, as we usually understand the words in English, are not a wholesome root for action, are not a wholesome basis for action. Guilt and shame are not a wholesome or skillful basis for action. And this is an interesting point to me because sometimes one of the reasons that we're unwilling to pick up any responsibility for these larger matters is because we think that we have to, you know, eat this particular sandwich of self-degradation. But I think that's a wrong idea. You know, unhealthy healthy minds do not want to eat such a sandwich. So moral regret, moral regret can be wholesome and cleansing. Yeah, I screwed up. Yeah, I was a bad one. Moral regret. Or we screwed up. Yes, it's a problem. Moral concern. I don't don't want this to continue. I wouldn't want this to happen. We wouldn't want this to happen. We wouldn't want this to continue. Moral concern is wholesome and clarifying. It's actually empowering, right? You can see the difference in the mental factors that are present there. They're wholesome. There's a, there's a willingness to engage. It's understood as a, an application of this important aspect of the teachings, which is this discernment of what intentions are skillful to act out of and which ones aren't. So a next point of this, we talked about motivation. We talked about the basis for engagement. The next thing, I think, is related to skill in action. Skill in action, in taking action. Skillful means. So this gets to the doing of things. Now, a first comment would be the mind needs to be trained in order to be skillful, right? There's some assets there that we can deploy if there is bhavana, if there has been development 
cult- through this process of cultivation of the mind and its potentials. The mind needs to be trained in order to be a skillful actor. But of course, you know, if the world's on fire, maybe you don't go all the way through the fireman course before you throw a bucket of water on it. Right? So we've got the mind that we have. And you may not feel this way, having been here for nearly six weeks or three months. But maybe you don't want me to break this to you, but you, you, the level of development of a person that would wind up here doing this kind of thing and stay with it for this length of time, you are like way ahead of the pack. Now that's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? Isn't it? But when you but when you really look at your mind, when you really look at your mind and you know all the crazy stuff that's happened, all the hindrances, all the calaces, all the like whoa. And you realize you're not like worse than average. <laughs> it explains a lot, doesn't it? Doesn't it explain a lot about the state of the world? Doesn't it? I mean, it, for for me, when I first started doing this, I, I started, you know, really looking at my own uh, experience. It was like, wow, wow. And then I watched my mind kind of next make the next leap, and this was in regard to family and family dynamics. And the mind went, wow. <laughs> if my mind is like this, That means that my parents' minds are like, wow. (laughs) It's like, no wonder. No wonder. And there was like this huge letting go of just a lot of crap in relationship to my family. It's like, oh. The compassion of it, the, the wisdom of it. So there's a lot, a lot about skillful means in action. And uh, there's a wonderful book by Bhikkhu Bodhi. This is an anthology that's called The Buddha's Teachings on Social and Community Harmony, where he basically goes through all of uh, the Buddha's teachings and he extracts from it points that he thinks are particularly pertinent or relevant. And uh, I'll give you an idea about what his chapter headings are because I think they can be a useful uh, indicator of what's in the book. So his, his first one, just like mine, is... He probably borrowed from me. Uh, right understanding comes first. Right understanding comes first. And the second is personal training. Um, Dealing with anger, proper speech, good friendship, the intentional community, disputes, 
settling disputes and establishing an equitable society. I'm going to focus mostly on skillful means, and I'm going to speak in part from my understanding of of the Dharma, but also my experience in working with groups, uh, doing this kind of work for many years. And what I learned from my own experience and from observing groups and how they function. So this is a little overlay of, uh, you know, my world and the the Buddha's uh, teachings with points highlighted that I think might be beneficial for you to know. So a first thing that's useful to develop is I would call it skill in speech. Skill in speech. So learning to speak in clear, wise, engaging ways which respect those spoken to and those spoken about. And part of this is creating vision and beauty which uplifts people and energizes them with hope. You know, it's not enough to talk about how bad it is. If it's so bad, you know, maybe you should go back to bed and just pull your covers over your head. Yeah, it's bad. But there needs to be something more there. So, we know the destructive power of unwise speech. How easy it is to divide, how easy it is to be divisive. When I was telling the story about Sharon's retreat at BCBS, one of the things that I reflected at about at the beginning of the talk was how much easier it actually is to destroy than to put back together. This is an aspect of dukkha, right? I was talking about the song, that the refrain that was in the video about you can be the healing, you can be the flower and the gun, you can be the flower and the gun. And yes, we can be the healing, we can be the flower and the gun. But let's not just address repair work. We got to get out ahead of it. (laughs) There are so many different views and opinions. We need to draw up humans. There's a very interesting thing that can happen in groups where the most dominant person in the group actually seems to have the capacity to shift the brainwave patterns of the rest of the people. Isn't that interesting? You know, we know from our our own politics how easy it is to throw a metaphorical bomb into the collective field and sow division and hatred to turn people into the others that are presumably so different from us and so threatening. So this area of speech, this is how we convey things, especially at scale. Skill in speech, power in speech is very important. Another aspect of being skillful is being able to hold a not-self perspective under pressure. Not blaming shaming, separating, 
those who have different views and perceptions from the field of goodwill, recognizing that today's enemy might not always be so. And, you know, part of this is practicing not being activated by untrained minds. You know, there's a lot of manipulation going on now uh, with social media. You know, a lot of intentional activating of people's fears and anger and all the rest of it for political gain or for power and control. Can you keep your seat with this? And related to this is recognizing and practicing with your own hindrances. And they will arise. Recognizing when a group hindrance is present and not feeding it, monitoring it. So it's a very interesting thing if you've ever done this kind of engagement or done this kind of work in groups. How in a certain kind of way the frustration and the dukkha of the situation easily turns into a certain kind of horizontal hostility, right? Where the, the group kind of turns its incohate rage at the suffering that, that's being experienced, the frustration that's being experienced, the futility that's present there in the field, and it starts to do this, be applied to people who are largely in agreement with you, who could be friends, who probably share 90% of your value set. But, you know, this is like a classic sign of burnout, too, right? Where there's too much suffering, the mind can't hold it. And it goes into something else. Another important piece here is to not take up responsibility in unskillful ways. What does that mean? That's a double negative. One of those Buddha things, double negatives. Not taking up responsibility in unskillful ways. You will not solve global warming. And you will not end racism. And you will not end war, but you can contribute by wise action to the efforts of many others which together create the causes and conditions for change. But if you burden your actions with demands for an outcome that you personally can't control, that's suffering all the way. I'm going to take on world hunger. Well, you know, sharing your, sharing your meal is not going to do it. So 
if we think that we have to take full responsibility for actually making something that's global and has many roots and many manifestations different, that it's all up to us, if we take it up like that, that's suffering. You're not going to last very long. I remember once I knew a a woman who was uh, in her 90s, and even though she was still in her 90s, she would still go to organizing meetings. And um, somebody said to her once, you know, you know, you've been coming to these meetings, you've been engaged for you know all these years. You know, what is the secret of your continued involvement? And she said, you have to do this in a way and at a pace that you can keep it going for 50 years. So it's also useful to recognize that what you're addressing is a result of many causes and conditions, most of them front-loaded, which is another way of saying coming from the past. So this means that action requires Patience, endurance, courage, resolve, letting go. Letting go. So all that parami practice really supports your ability to be engaged in a way that gives you some steadiness, that gives you some ground, that gives you the ability to to go for the the long the long haul and then recognizing the conditioned nature of perception including your perceptions <laughs> oh, it's not just that other people have wrong view or don't get it it's like you do Two. <laughs> so we all have invisible and built-in biases and associations which lead to a cognitive distortion. So the others aren't the only ones that don't see clearly. We also have issues. We're all deluded. Okay, so hopefully... Uh, by doing this retreat, at least you know it. <laughs> you know, you know there's like maybe a little, like a little, you know, something a little <laughs> in there. Not quite, you know, lined up with things as they are all the time. So I'll give you an example of this. So, you know, for many years, IMS out here in the, in the country, um, with Metta above the door was open to to anybody who came here to practice. Anybody who came here to practice was welcome. But what IMS didn't understand for many years and has gradually kind of woken up to was that even though IMS and the people here felt like everybody was welcome, that there were actually things about the environment that made it maybe not so universally 
accessible and welcoming and uh, a home place for everybody. You know? When we started looking at the feedback that we were getting, for instance, from yogis of color about that experience, we started to realize, okay, it's been white people who have thought everybody is welcome here, but we didn't realize that we were doing certain things and not doing certain other things that actually made this place here kind of uncomfortable and somewhat unsafe feeling and perhaps not quite pertinent. And we went through this whole process of, of reviewing a lot of different things. You could, you could say that uh, the teacher training that we're doing right now, which is majority people of color, is one of the outcomes of that self-examination and taking in the experience of others and letting it modify our own perceptions. So we even, you know, did some things like, you know, we have this, these, this is kind of like a, what would it be, empire period style construction of the main building here. One piece of the feedback that we got is, you know, for some people, driving up to this place and seeing this place that looks like a plantation house with these big white pillars out in front, that's not... You know, that has a certain kind of resonance, that has a certain kind of association here that kind of starts you off feeling, ah, not so comfortable here, what is going on here? The examples that were used to illustrate stories, the way that we would often use universal we's and not acknowledge or speak to the fact that people were actually having a lot of different experiences that were part of the context that they brought here. So, being open to learning the limitations of our conditioned perceptions And this is really related to learning from the views of others. So even if you don't agree with the view or the position of other people, the fact that they have that view requires you to consider it, at least strategically, as a factor. So don't activate enemies by how you treat people. You ever hear of this thing called predatory listening? Has anybody heard of that phrase? That's when you're listening to somebody and you're just looking for what they're going to say wrong. And you're just waiting to correct them and tell them what's screwed up about what they're saying. Oh, that person used that language and that's not the language we use now. Or that person, you know... You don't know this, or you don't know that. You know, you're just kind of like waiting to pounce, waiting to pounce. So if you can resist the urge to polarize with others or cast them out of the tribe because they have a different perspective, If you're not making an ally, at least you're not cementing an enemy. 
So if you use mindfulness to monitor your own state of body and mind as you act, and if you notice that you're out of balance, then you want to address that as a priority. That's not a put something aside to get something done and just plow on ahead. If the mind is in an unstable state, you need to address that first. That's the top priority. Don't be seduced by extremes. This Buddhist teaching is the teaching of the middle path. Equanimity. Can you bring equanimity into the foreground? Reflect on impermanence. Reflect on dukkha and not self. Let yourself be happy and okay. You know, you don't need to go over the edge into self-destruction. This is not the middle way. So it helps nobody if the action is no longer coming from a wholesome, wise place. It's self-destructive, plus it won't work. Recognize and deal with anger. The Buddha actually had nothing good to say about it. No, it can have energy. It can have clarity. But if it's the lead horse when you're acting, it will not go well. So if you can learn how to work with your own anger and the anger of others in a way that doesn't feed it, It's very skillful because anger makes you stupid. It does. It literally does. I mean, it. it, You know, if you're really, if you've really got it going on, the higher function of the brain is not available. No, I'm old enough to be of the Vietnam era. And one of the things that I noticed in the Vietnam era as far as the organizing efforts were the cause was clear. There was a lot of um, moral clarity and zeal, a lot of moral outrage. And as the, the war went on, as the process went on, the actions, the actors started to disunify and split into lots and lots of different perspectives on what should be done. What should be done. It got to the the point at a certain point where people were saying and they completely believed that if one was not willing like to plant a bomb or something that meant that you were not committed to peace. But the Buddha says the means and the ends are one and the same. Right? So in going to that kind of extreme, one of the things that that happened was that the greater society became more and more polarized and could point to the extreme actions of the few as a reason to discredit the many and to not listen to their voice. 
So this, this tendency towards purity, this idea of purity, that somehow if you, you go to the far, far edges, if you cross over the boundary of sila, that somehow that this is virtue, that somehow this is wholesome and is going to, to bear karmic fruit that you're going to want to eat. It can be seductive, but I disagree. Then there's the other way of being extreme, too. You know the, the Buddhist teachings of the two-handed saw? You ever hear this one? I'm sure some of you have heard this. So the teaching was, the Buddha was talking about, I think this was theoretical, about disciples on the road and if they were set upon by bandits. And the bandits decided that they were going to basically saw them in two with a, you know, a two-handed saw that they would not be the disciples of the Buddha if they didn't, uh, you know, practice loving kindness uh, related to this as it was going on, if their, their minds kind of fell into uh, aversion. So a couple comments about that. <laughs> one is, this is a one-time only practice opportunity. So don't screw it up. (laughs) But the other thing was, this was a pointing to the importance of maintaining metta and wholesome view, right view, no matter what was going on. This was not a teaching of the Buddha that said, oh, you know, if there's bandits on the road, if they're grabbing people, they use the two-handed saw, you know, it's just like, just do metta. That was not what was being said, okay? Because if there's bandits on the road with a two-handed saw, then somebody needs to go out to the bandits on the road and take away the two-handed saw and take away the bandits, right? So we're not called upon to be uh, naive in the understanding of these teachings. Good friends, good friends. Who is, who is your tribe? How do you find your place? Well, we've got our gender tribes and our age tribes and our national tribes and our racial tribes and our religious tribes and all these different distinctions. But is it really your your tribe, or at least one of your tribes, the tribe that shares common values. The ones that are committed to the development of their own heart and mind and act from that. So if you're looking for a tribe to work with, to organize with, this is probably something to consider. finding people who are value congruent with you and being selective in your close associations. So we're in the world. 
We're in the world. We are worldlings. We are not uninstructed worldlings. We are instructed worldlings, but here we are. This is where we are for now. Whether we're on the cushion or we're off the cushion, whether we're engaging with our intimates, whether we're at work, whether we're taking social action, all of these practice perspectives and principles are still available to us. So this is one of the ways to truly be an integrated human being, is, is, to, is to hold the Dharma understanding, to hold the commitment to sila, to hold the understanding of the importance of wise view and all the different dimensions of our lives. We don't need to be split. We don't need to be split off. We're actors. We're actors in this matrix of causes and conditions. So we're having an effect whether we want to or not, even if we're practicing just quietism and withdrawal from engagement. We're still part of the field. We're contributory. So the question is, can we be more intentionally contributory? We're fully engaged, more wisely engaged, to not see this as a diversion or something different, but see it as congruent and part of how we understand things, of how we bring uh, metta and compassion forward in the world. So here's to uh, making things not to. Because the only place they've ever been to is in our own delusion. May the many actions of body, speech, and mind which arise from our practice be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of all beings. And may we be of benefit to all beings, seen and unseen, in what we think, say, and do. May all beings awaken together and find peace. Mm -hmm.